You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuts. All right, folks. Hey, no guests today, just me on the microphone. And we're going to be chatting about the TV show, Ted Lasso. And we're going to look at the show through the lens of systems theory and through the lens of some of the managing leadership anxiety tools. Uh, If you haven't seen the show, Ted Lasso, I think you can still get something out of this podcast episode. I'll give us a brief overview of the show. But really, for those of you who are fans of the show and you enjoy watching it, uh, I want to break it down and show you how systems theory is working in that show. And, and I'm doing it for mainly because the tools of systems theory can feel so conceptual. And sometimes it can really help to see it in action, to watch it on the screen. So when, when I'm teaching, when I'm doing workshops for organizations, I'll quite frequently refer to a number of TV shows and movies as fleshed out examples of systems theory. So Ted Lasso, uh, let me just give a brief overview for those of you who maybe haven't watched it. The premise of the show, it's, it's supposed to be a comedy. It's very funny, um, but it's also sort of a drama. And the premise is that there's this American football coach named Ted Lasso. He's a Midwestern, like Division three, Division four college level coach who is hired by an English premier soccer team or premier football team to be their head coach, uh, their manager. AFC Richmond, a fictional team that's playing in the actual Premier League. So Ted flies over from the Midwest and his character, he's just extremely cheerful. He's very folksy, very homey. Uh, He has a lot of wonderful quips and mannerisms. And the whole show premise is about him as this fish out of water Midwesterner and his assistant coach, Beard, Coach Beard, who flies over with him, how they navigate a very cynical and broken culture in this football team, both within the players, but also all the way up to the owner, Rebecca. And there's a number of people involved. Uh, so Rebecca uh, is the owner of the, of the team. She had a very public divorce from the owner before, and she negotiated ownership of the team in the divorce. So her ex-husband, Rupert, who's a terrible human being, he lost his beloved team to her and she basically bought it off him or negotiated it off him out of spite. So Rebecca is Ted's boss. Uh, there's a young lady named Keely who is a model who dates one of the football players. There's Roy Kent, who's the old time captain of the team who's starting to get old. And then there's Jamie Tart, Jamie, who is a young, hot player, kind of a David Beckham type player. Um, who's very emotionally unaware and very gifted on the soccer field and very um, selfish. So Ted and Beard come into this uh, English team as a fish out of water. So let me just go and show what I'm going to do is I'm going to say, okay, here's the principle. I'm going to teach us the principle. And then here's where we see it in the life of Ted Lasso. And uh, we'll do it a couple of ways. I'm going to go just generally through the show, and then I'm actually going to grab a couple of episodes specifically and highlight what's going on in those episodes. Rightio, let's start with the uh, managing leadership anxiety concept that health infects ill health. Health infects ill health. This is kind of a system series concept, but I've really coined it, particularly with a gospel that the big idea is if you can manage yourself and be a healthy person, 
emotionally healthy and spiritually healthy, you have tremendous leadership power to infect unhealthy people and help them be well. I actually think this health infecting in ill health is an area of the gospel that we don't focus on enough. I think it's a powerful side of the gospel that I wish we would harness more and talk about more. Before we get to Ted Lasso, let's, let's talk about Jesus. In the Old Testament, before Jesus came, the basic understanding was that if you wanted to be close to God, you had to stay away from sinners and you had to stay away from physically sick people, like people with leprosy or what we now know as Hansen's disease. So in the Old Testament, you know, the book of Proverbs, bad company corrupts good character. So make sure you stay far away from tax collectors, prostitutes, people of ill repute. You know, book of Proverbs, and let's face it, folks, a lot of 1990s youth ministry was based on staying away from sinful people. Um, Also in the Old Testament, if you wanted to be holy and close to God, you had to make sure you stayed away from people with Hansen's disease, what was called leprosy back then, because the belief was that that people's sickness would infect your health. People's sin would infect your holiness. Then Jesus comes along. He blows that whole operation up. He hangs out. He's actually befriending tax collectors and prostitutes, fishermen, people of ill repute, people with no real power in society. And they are getting closer to God rather than him being infected by them. The infection transfer reverses and they get infected by him. Jesus keeps saying to these people that the kingdom of hand is close. It is not as far as you think it is. So it turns out in Christ, health actually infects ill health. Jesus put his hand on the leper to heal the leper. And rather than the leprosy contagiously catching Jesus, Jesus' health infects the sickness of the leper and the leper gets better. I believe that any leader who is a follower of Christ has the power of the gospel in them that if we can just be well, work on our own emotional and spiritual wellness, we can come into a sick group and slowly help them become well as well. So as it relates to Ted Lasso, what's fascinating is the opening sequence with the theme song. You know, Marcus Mumford is joyfully singing, yeah, right? Uh, In that moment, Ted in the opening sequence, they're showing all the actors and stuff. Ted is sitting in the stadium and all of the seats are blue and fully graffitied. But the, as soon as Ted sits on one seat, that seat turns red. And then the red spreads from Ted throughout the stadium and all the graffiti is cleaned up. And now these are new seats. Uh, and and it's, it's a simple idea of health infecting ill health. It's a very beautifully done opening sequence because it's actually the metaphor for the whole show. What we soon discover is Ted shows up to this pretty sick system. There's a lot of backbiting, a lot of cynicism. Uh, There's a lot of bullying going on. There's a lot of backdoor deals going on. These are evidences of sickness. One, One of my jobs when I come into an organization is I'm trying to notice signs of health and signs of sickness. And cynicism is often a sign of sickness and bullying, negative power dynamics. Ted walks into all of this with the Richmond uh, Football Club. But because he is optimistic, he believes the best in other people, he thinks well of people, uh, he starts to slowly infect them to be well. And there's a couple of wonderful moments, even in the first episode, 
Um, which leads us to our second point. If our first point is health infects ill health, the second point is one of the ways to be healthy is to be exactly human-sized. Exactly human-sized. I believe that all God is requiring out of any leader is to be exactly human-sized. Nothing more, nothing less. So let's look at how that looks in Ted. Ted flies to England. He's an American football coach in a kind of a, not an amateur coach, but he's not Division I college. He's a lower-level uh, college coach. And uh, he admits right up front that he really doesn't know anything about English football, about what he would call soccer. And so very early in the show, he's doing a press conference because here he is, he's the coach or the manager of a Premier League soccer team. Like the stakes are huge. And the, the press are trying to show him for the doofus that he really is, that he's this incompetent American who has no business coaching English football. But uh, he, instead of trying to act bigger than he is, Ted is exactly who he is. And he just chases them to the bottom. This is another tool that we teach in systems theory is sometimes when people are trying to discover that you're human, rather than pretend that you're more than you really are, you just chase them to the bottom and you show just how human you are. So right away in the press conference, he absolutely disarms the press by admitting that he doesn't know how many periods are in a game. Is it quarters or halves? He doesn't know what to call a pitch. I think he calls it a field. He doesn't know how to explain offside. And he doesn't pretend that he does. The media in the press conference are incensed. They are apoplectic. They cannot believe that Richmond has hired such an incompetent coach. But he is exactly who he is without catching their anxiety. All this anxiety from the mob is now coming onto Ted. And he just sits there very comfortably and says, here's who I am. So this is where we first see Ted differentiating. This is what differentiation looks like. Ted notices the anxiety coming at him from the press, and rather than catching it, he defines himself. And he says to them, look, I couldn't explain offside. I don't know how many periods in a game. Here's what I know. I know how to build team culture. That's why I'm here. I'm less concerned about winning and losing, and I'm more concerned about a healthy team culture. And then by the end of the first episode, there's just this wonderful uh, moment where Ted kind of sets out a complaint box and one of the players complains that the showers in the locker room don't have enough pressure. And by the end of the episode, Ted has made sure that the shower pressure is good. And it's just this little indication at the end of the first episode that health is infecting ill health by being exactly human-sized, by differentiating himself, Ted begins to show the team that there's a new fresh opportunity, that you don't have to be cynical, you don't have to be bullying, you don't have to power up on each other, you can be exactly human-sized. All right. A another great theme in the whole series is the simple idea that the most anxious person in any room has the most power unless a calm leader is in the room. The most anxious person has the most power unless a calm leader is in the room. Uh, Ted quickly sees the team dynamics. He sees Jamie's anxiety. Jamie's the young gun player, kind of the David Beckham type player. And he sees how Jamie's bullying is infecting others into bullying behavior. And so Ted then gently begins a multi-episode reframing and clarifying of the culture. He pulls Jamie aside. He talks to some of Jamie's minions and he's inviting them to see a different way. 
Ted's also looking for people in the group, what we call the motivated change agents. He's finding guys that maybe uh, have been quiet and he's pulling them out. So the very famous goldfish speech was Sam. Very early in the show, Ted has identified Sam as a potential motivated change agent. And so he's disrupting the homeostasis. So what Ted does is he notices the most anxious person in the room, which in this case is Jamie. And, and I'll just make a comment. Sometimes when you hear that, that the most anxious person in the room has the most power, you think of worry and fear. But Jamie's anxiety is manifest by bullying and powering up. So when you're looking for the most anxious person in the room, typically what you're looking for is somebody who's no longer human-sized. So it's either somebody who's making themselves bigger, like they're anxious and so they, they kind of puff themselves up. They start interrupting people in a meeting. They're no longer able to listen. They're hijacking. They're not able to manage their anxiety. Their reactivity is spilling over. These are the people that get bigger. Other people's anxiety, it's harder to notice. They're shrinking themselves down and getting smaller. They're not saying much. They've gotten really quiet. They're just trying to, kind of trying to stay out of trouble. Your job as a leader is to notice those dynamics and then help everybody be human-sized, everybody to speak their minds, say what they think, create a culture where people can tell the truth. So Ted quickly notices that Jamie's anxiety is infecting others, and then he intentionally disrupts the homeostasis. Homeostasis is a systems concept. It's the idea that every group will sabotage change so they can stay the same. So Ted is intentionally disrupting homeostasis to try to create a healthy system. And he does it in a couple of ways. He, as I mentioned, he fixes the shower pressure, but also he elevates the laundry boy to become the assistant coach, uh, Nate. In a wonderful early scene, uh, Ted asks Nate his name and just to get to know him. And Nate says, who, me? And Ted basically says, well, yes, like I'm talking to you, therefore I must be. Because Nate has been diminished the whole time. He's nothing but the laundry boy. He mows the lawn or the pitch. He's, he's like a servant. And Ted disrupts homeostasis by taking the kid that everyone was picking on and putting him in a leadership role. Now, those of us who are Ted Lasso fans, we see later on that that kind of comes back to bite, but it's a beautiful move early. The other thing that Ted does to disrupt homeostasis and to practice differentiation is he moves toward the people who are openly sabotaging him. So when the media are calling him an idiot and a moron and using some crass language, the show has quite a bit of crass language in it, Ted moves toward those people instead of running away from them. And so Trent Krim, Trent Krim, the independent, Trent Krim invites Ted into a media interview and Ted shows up exactly as who he is. And through that encounter, he wins Trent over. Trent is considered probably one of the most cynical and skeptical of all the media. And so Ted grabs a dinner meal with him And by the end of that, Trent publishes this article on Ted that he thought was going to be an expose on the idiot. And the final phrase in the article is Trent Krim saying, I can't help but rooting for him. I can't help but hoping that this guy comes through. 
And uh, basically, Trent moves from being independent. He's working for the independent newspaper. Now he's interdependent. Now he and Ted have a bond. Okay. Uh, another example of Ted moving toward people who are out to sabotage him is when Jamie gets traded to another team and Ted writes Jamie a letter. And it turns out to be a letter of blessing, the kind of letter you would hope that your dad would send you. And even though Ted is losing his star player and it has huge impact on Ted's ability to coach the team, he writes a letter to Jamie blessing him, telling him what a gifted athlete he is. And it's so earnest that Jamie doesn't believe it. Jamie's still wrapped up in cynicism. Another systems tool that you look for when you're bringing change is you're trying to find in any group the motivated change agents. The motivated change agents. What's interesting is when you come into a group and you need to bring change, oftentimes the group is stuck. And it's always important to me to point this out. You know, when you're trained in systems theory, it's not like you're smarter than other people. It's more often than not that you're just able to notice stuck patterns. So when I'm in a system, I still get stuck and I need help from others. But Ted comes in, he sees this system of cynicism, of powering up, of backdoor conversations, gossip, all of this. And he starts recruiting the motivated change agents. Who wants to see healthy culture? When we first watch the show, there's only two people. That's Ted and the assistant coach Beard. But in short order, within a couple of episodes, we have six motivated change agents all of a sudden. We have Ted, Beard, we have Nate, the former laundry boy who's now an assistant. We have Sam, the young African player. We have the bartender, May. We have Keely, the model. And then uh, those people are publicly on board. And then privately, we have Higgins, who works for Rebecca, the boss. Higgins is secretly on board, but he's too anxious to publicly join Ted's team. And that's fine with Ted. So now he has all of these motivated change agents. If you can find the people who are motivated to see healthy culture and you can recruit them onto your team, you can change uh, culture so much faster than if you're just trying to do it alone. A lot of leaders make the mistake of putting culture on their own back. But a systems leader will look for the people who want to help build it with you and you will... Uh, what you do is you delegate authority to those people. The people who are motivated to see healthy culture and break some of these unhealthy patterns, give them authority. And that's what Ted does with Nate. That's what he does with Higgins. That's what he does with Keeley. All right. Another beautiful example of power of differentiation and the way Ted differentiates is the dartboard scene in season one. Um, probably among us Ted Lasso fans, probably one of the most beloved scenes in the whole two seasons. If you go back and watch the dartboard scene, you can see Ted differentiating because Rupert, Rebecca's terrible ex-husband, has made a number of moves by this point in the show to just reveal himself as an absolute jerk. Uh, Rupert has a, an imbalance of power and responsibility. Now, Typically, when somebody has an imbalance of power and responsibility, they have too much responsibility and not enough power. Many of you, this is what you struggle with. This is probably the question I receive. One of the top questions I receive is you're in some kind of a role in your organization where you have all this responsibility. You have no power to change things and you feel anxious. Rupert's problem is the opposite. 
He has all of this power and no responsibility. And therefore, he is irresponsible. He can come into the auction and blow it up. He can uh, get a crowd on his side. He can say terrible, cruel things to Rebecca because he's not carrying the weight of responsibility. So people with too much responsibility and not enough power, you get frustrated and worn down because you, you don't have the power to make the change you're responsible for. But people with too much power and not enough responsibility, these are the people who can do tremendous damage to other people. You can actually do your own study of this through like child stars. Let's talk about a young guy like Justin Bieber. Like, okay, so he shouldn't be crashing Lamborghinis when he's in his early 20s. Sure. But, you know, rather than blaming him for it, you can actually see it through the lens of power and responsibility. At that point in his life, Bieber had very little responsibility and an awful lot of power. And so he did irresponsible things. And that's what Rupert does. And it culminates in the dartboard game, the dart scene. Now, Ted shows up and Rupert has already decided he knows who Ted is. The crowd has already made that determination. In fact, the crowd is thoroughly excited to see Rupert defeat Ted in darts. But Ted doesn't let others define him, even when it's a mob, even when it's a powerful man of privilege, because Ted is differentiated. He's able to see what no one else in that room can see. They've all been infected by themselves. And when we are infected by ourselves, we're no longer able to see what's true. And what's amazing in that dartboard scene is Ted actually quotes Walt Whitman and talks about the power of curiosity. Now, I have no idea if uh, Jason Sudeikis and uh, Brendan Hunt and the people who write the Ted Lasso show, I have no idea if they've studied systems theory. What's fascinating to me is if it's not intentional, how often they stumble into a truth in systems theory because the opposite of anxiety in systems theory is curiosity. If you are anxious, the best tool to lower your anxiety is to move into a posture of curiosity. Curiosity about yourself, where you say, I wonder what's going on in me right now. Why am I all spun up? Curiosity about the people around you. And that is essentially the speech that Ted then uses. It's a wonderful David and Goliath scene where Ted topples the terrible Rupert. It's so satisfying to watch. But Ted talks about, he's, he basically schools Rupert in the crowd and says, none of you are curious. And Ted makes this beautiful statement. People have been assuming things about me my whole life, he says. But if you just use curiosity, you might have actually asked me some questions. For example, have you ever played darts before, Ted? And I would have answered, yes, sir, I have. Every Sunday afternoon in the pub with my father until he died when I was 16. It's such a poignant moment. It's such a beautiful moment. And then, of course, the, the payoff, the satisfaction of Ted defeating this jerk Rupert. It's lovely. All right. Another power tool in managing leadership anxiety is learning how to notice the story we tell ourselves. The story we tell ourselves is kind of related to being infected by ourselves. Every one of us has a narrative about ourselves, and we act out of that narrative and we're infected by it. Even, then, even when reality is different 
we, we, we can't seem to get to reality because we're infected by ourselves. This is why curiosity is such a powerful tool because I think the spiritual journey is learning to be cleansed, let, letting the gospel cleanse us from the infection of self so that we can be free in Christ. Maybe another way to say it would be letting reality infect our version of reality. And in most of season one, the people in the Ted Lasso show are all acting out of the story they tell themselves. And it's keeping them stuck and in a rut. And it keeps them in stuck patterns of behavior. So Rebecca must have revenge. Roy, the old player, must be detached. Jamie's clearly acting out of a wound between him and his dad. And in real life and in organizations, most human drama and most damage, relational damage, happens because we're infected with ourselves instead of being able to see what's really true. And I actually think that that's some of the deepest spiritual work that we can, that we can do. Okay, differentiation. One of the great delights of Ted Lasso is seeing the different characters kind of wake up and come to life. And very early, Keely, the model, the girlfriend of Jamie, Keely moves very quickly from just what I would have assumed was just kind of a, a side assistant character to being really one of the great forces on the show. Keely is one of the most differentiated people, particularly in season one, but even into season two. She's really one of the first to really see Ted. I think it was the first episode where she sees Ted's little hand-drawn sign above uh, his office, uh, I believe, I think it says. And she notices something different where she sees Ted very gently covering up a, a pinup photo of her that Jamie has in his locker where Ted covers her up with modesty. And she starts to notice, okay, there's something different about this guy. But what's also fascinating about Keely is you can watch her in season one as she manages her boyfriend Jamie's anxiety coming at her. And then later on, Roy's when she starts to date Roy instead. And then after that, Roy's niece. Also, even though Rebecca is the boss and quite an intimidating person, Keely uh, does not let intimidation stop her from moving toward Rebecca and they become true friends. This is an interesting side of differentiation. Some of you, uh, you, you've stopped seeing someone as a human being because they're so intimidating. And it might be their height, might be the way they communicate, it might be their position in the organization. But differentiation forces you to continue to see people as exactly human-sized. And Keeley's an amazing example of somebody who sees Rebecca for being a human being in need of care and love rather than being the big bad boss. And so she's not threatened by Rebecca and she boldly moves toward Rebecca and helps Rebecca get what Rebecca needs most, which is a friend. All right, uh, let's see. I'm, I feel like I'm jumping around a bit, but I'm going to go back to homeostasis and take a look at season two. All right, homeostasis is the idea that groups resist change so they can stay the same. So by season two, Ted is no longer the only calm person in the room. Now by season two, we have Higgins, uh, the, the kind of assistant. Uh, Higgins can comfortably confront Beard about his relationship with Jane without anger, without needing anything from Beard, just calm, care, and love. What I also love about season two is how the care between people starts flowing back and forward. It's no longer just Ted giving all the care. I actually think this is one of the great 
magical elements of the Ted Lasso show is it's not that one hero saves the day. It's not that one person is, is being what we would call an overfunctioner doing all the work. No, in season one, Ted set up a culture where care can be given and received. And then in season two, it's others who do the primary care and it's Ted who becomes the primary recipient. And so Higgins cares for Beard. Uh, Rebecca delightfully becomes a great friend for Ted. She's now moving fully toward him, of course, because of that extremely powerful moment of forgiveness in season one where Rebecca confesses something very dark to Ted and he just very purely and matter-of-factly forgives her as a human being. So now Rebecca is differentiated. She's managed to get past the story she's telling herself about herself. And this is what happens. This is the beauty of when a calm person comes in and infects a sick system and people start to be well. They're no longer caught up in being infected by themselves. They're now free to give and receive love and care and see each other as human beings. It's really beautiful. What I've really enjoyed about season two, because I know a lot of people have said, oh, season two isn't the same. No, of course it's not the same. Like season one, so much of the delight was being surprised, right? Like discovering things about people. Season two, to me, the delight of season two is watching the care and the love going back and forward rather than just from one person. So now Ted uh, is being carried when he cannot carry himself. Um, there are enough calm, differentiated people in the group to relieve Ted of carrying the calm. So those of you who are leaders that feel like it's always all on your shoulders, uh, I, I don't say this to give you another job, but it really is your job to actually let the care and the differentiation go both ways. Our staff, my key leaders, they're not healthy because I'm the healthiest person. They're healthy because I've asked them to help me when I'm in need. So when I'm anxious, they comfort me. And uh, just to give you some present tense, like, uh, you know, we're in a leadership transition right now. We're down to choosing the last couple of candidates for my role. And I'm really anxious about it. Like the candidates we're looking at are fantastic. Both of them are amazing people. But I'm dealing with a lot of anxiety and grief after 16 years. And the last time one of my key leaders cared for me was last night moving toward my family, just doing an, um, an act of kindness for me and my family. Okay, let's talk about triangulation. Triangulation, this is a, one of the eight core concepts of Bowen theory of systems theory. In season two, there's a really tangible moment of detriangulation where Jamie and Roy uh, are not getting along. Obviously, they share the same girlfriend as Jamie's ex-girlfriend is now Roy's current girlfriend. So obviously that's tension. Roy also had to retire. Uh, he kind of aged out of playing soccer and he really struggled to find himself for a while there. He then comes back to the team as a coach and then he refuses to coach Jamie because Jamie's the self-important reality star, kind of good-looking young guy. And he's just a jerk, right? Jamie just has a lot of immaturity. And so Jamie comes to Ted and basically says to Ted, you have to make Roy coach me. And if you look at that episode, you can see Ted refusing to be triangulated between Jamie and Roy. Ted basically says, you have to figure it out yourself. Ted also refuses Sam's anxious assumptions when Ted is looking at bringing Jamie back onto the team 
And Sam's very anxious about it because Sam is making assumptions that now that Jamie's left, the team is healthy. If Jamie comes back, the team will not be healthy anymore because Jamie was the most anxious person in the room. What Sam doesn't realize is the team has changed and the health has been spread among the group. And then, of course, um, we can see Keely also detriangulating. Keely, what she does is she uses the rule that I teach people where she puts the anxiety where it belongs on the one generating it. Uh, it's pretty remarkable if you watch Keely. Keely is able to, to be in the presence of somebody else's anxiety, even when they're putting expectation on her. And she walks away with that person carrying their own anxiety. And she does it with tremendous empathy. It's, it's really, Keely's really an incredible model of somebody who can sit with an anxious person even when their anxiety is massively disrupting her plans. Like quite famously, she had this special night plan for Roy and then Roy's niece sabotaged it with this tooth infection. And Keely very calmly is able to connect to people without catching their anxiety. It's quite, quite beautiful. So then by season two, we see some of the wonderful payoff of all this early work that Ted did. And one of the, my favorite payoffs was the Christmas episode I know that that episode also got a lot of flack because it was so, you know, syrupy, uh, the, the kind of the love actually stuff. But one of the parts I absolutely loved about that episode is when Higgins opens up his home for Christmas and he just makes a comment to his, the coaching staff. He says, you know, every year we just host Christmas for any player that is from another country and they can't go home for Christmas. And he says, you know, normally maybe one or two players come, but this Christmas, it, his house just was full of players from other countries and that, that dinner scene was just beautiful. Just so much life and, and energy in it. And from a systems theory perspective, Higgins has gone from anxious to calm. Higgins has gone from letting other people define him. Rupert used to define him by letting, making him sneak in women when Rebecca wasn't watching. Rebecca defined Higgins as kind of Rupert's minion. And through season one, Higgins starts to differentiate and figure out who he is and be exactly human-sized. And that makes him the kind of person everyone wants to now be around. And so it's just a wonderful payoff that now that Higgins is no longer letting others define him and he's defining himself, there's a line out the door when it's time for Christmas. This, this team can't imagine anything better than spending Christmas at Higgins' house. It's just, just wonderful. I think that's about it for Ted Lasso. Uh, I, I will just maybe in the next five minutes just cover a couple of specific episodes. Uh, okay, let's talk about season two, episode eight. And let's talk about Jamie's journey and Roy's journey. This is now, as of the recording of this, this is uh, a few episodes old. One of the theories and systems theory is the multi-generation transmission process. Uh, I'm definitely mindful on a podcast that I'm using a lot of words in an audible format. So I don't know if you're still with me or not on this, but the basic idea is that we all inherit assets and liability traits from our family of origin. There are things that our family passed down to us that are real gifts. And there are things that are real obstacles that we have to navigate. And if we don't process things, they get transmitted to the next generation. So the job of all of us is to process the liabilities and the gifts that we're being given from our family. 
that we can transmit the ones we want and we can stop the others. So Roy is on his own journey of making sense of what he's inherited and what he wants to pass down. And in episode eight, there's this beautiful chat. It starts with Roy's, uh, with Phoebe, Roy's niece. It starts with Phoebe's teacher. Roy is definitely the father figure in Phoebe's life. He's, he's her uncle. He's obviously her beloved uncle. And there's hints early on in season two that he knows exactly how to be the kind of uncle Phoebe needs. He's actually coaching Rebecca on how to be with a child as Rebecca's anxious about it. So he's obviously very good at it. But what's interesting is the teacher in the parent-teacher conference gently invites Roy to really consider his assumptions about himself because Roy obviously very famously openly drops the F-bomb and all kinds of crude language in front of Phoebe without any concern. And so it's the teacher. She's not accusing Roy. She's not threatening him. She's just inviting him to see another way. And to Roy's great credit, he's already on a journey of trying to see himself a different way. He's noticed by this point in his life that the way he operates his life is not working for him. It's not giving him the relationships he wants. It's not giving him the freedom he's looking for. And boy, this scene really teared me up where Roy is in the car with Phoebe, his niece. And he basically very vulnerably shares with her his great fear that all he's passing on to her is the worst of himself, his bad language and his cynicism and his detachment. And this is really Roy's journey. Roy's differentiation journey is not going from enmeshment to differentiation. Roy's going from detachment. And he's learning to move toward people when he usually just wants to cut them off. And it's really beautiful. And then, of course, the payoff in that moment is with all of the history that Roy and Jamie have had together, where Jamie has this awful altercation with his father in front of the team that ends in Jamie punching his own dad in front of the team. Just a terrible, terrible moment. Roy knows that what Jamie needs is some kind of father figure to bless him. And so Roy stunningly moves toward Jamie and holds him in this big fatherly hug and uh, Jamie just melts. It's, it's really powerful. Roy was only able to do that because he's been on a multi-episode arc of differentiation. Keeley has infected Roy with health. Ted has infected Roy with health. The teacher. And then Roy starts to notice his impact on his niece, Phoebe. And he starts to look for another way. And it's just really beautiful. So one of the things I really admire about the show is how they do show these complex systems at work and how they're slowly infecting people toward health. What I also like about that scene where Roy hugs Jamie is Ted, who could easily become the hero of the show. In that scene, Ted can't offer Jamie what he needs. Roy steps in to do it. Ted was triggered by that scene because of Ted's own journey with his own father. And so Ted's immediately too flooded and Ted goes into self-care. So many leaders push through and don't take care of themselves, but Ted knew in that moment he was not able to give what's needed. So he just left. He just walked away. He's flooded. That's, of course, where he calls the therapist and admits what happened. But I love that about the show, that the care is flowing freely. Uh, What I wrote about it on Twitter is it's the fluid transmission of care that's now able to flow because of the early differentiation work Ted did. 
now several characters can give and receive care. No one needs to be the only one always saving the day. No one needs to be the hero. Just as we wrap up this podcast, I I want to invite you as a leader to stop seeing yourself as the one that always has to be giving, giving, giving. The vision for your community is that it should be mutual, not in an inappropriate way, not where people have to take care of you all the time, but there should be a mutual flow of care back and forward. There should be times where you're the differentiated one helping others. There should be times where your people are the differentiated ones helping you when you're anxious. But mostly what I love about that scene is Ted knowing that he needed care and then uh, going to get it for himself. The lastly, the final episode as of the recording of this is episode nine. It's called Beard After Hours. And again, a controversial episode. I, I don't know if you realize that um, when Apple TV signed on Ted Lasso for the second season, they asked for 10 episodes. So the writers did a 10 episode story arc and narrative arc. And then by that time, the show had blown up in season one. And so Apple came back to the writers and said, we need two more episodes. So the Christmas episode and the Beard After Hours episode are one-off episodes. They're not intended to move the narrative arc much. And I think that's probably why they're controversial. I personally loved Beard After Hours. I think you have to take it on its own merits. It's a standalone, but boy, visually beautiful. Just the cinematography was amazing. But let's talk about it through the lens of systems theory. So Beard obviously needs to differentiate. He's enmeshed in Jane. He's very much dependent on Ted. We actually know very little about Beard. Uh, For example, we don't know his name. We call him Beard because he has a beard. Is that his last name? We don't know. What we learn about Beard in this episode is his fierce inner critic. You know, so many of us, we wrestle with the voice of condemnation inside. And uh, some people that you're working with, their inner critic is so fierce, they can't hold it within. And what they do is they externalize it onto others. Those of you who are the top leader in your organization, I guarantee one of the things that frustrates you most is when people assume things about you that aren't true. They assume that you are out to get them, that you're about to fire them, that you're angry at them. And that's not true. Oftentimes, the reason people assume that, they have such a harsh inner critic, that, that story they tell themselves, they can't hold it. So they spill it out and they paint it onto you so that when they see you, they see their inner critic. This is some of the hardest work I've done with just a couple of my key staff is trying to help them see the harshness of their inner critic and the way they paint it onto other people. So something to pay attention to in a group. Sometimes the most anxious person in the room is the most powerful, yes. Sometimes, though, the quietest person in the room is the most powerful. And Coach Beard, up until this episode, is always the one that says the least. It's part of the wonderful comedy of the show is some of his staring matches with people and the awkward moments. It's delightful. But because Coach Beard speaks so little, when he does speak, we attribute too much power to him, right? Like sometimes when people are so quiet, we think they're automatically wise, And so we give too much weight to the words they say. So Beard is interesting because we ascribe so much to him based on his silence. He's almost like a human Rorschach test. 
Beard's almost a caricature. He's he's just on the edge of reality of the Ted Lasso universe. You know, his whole comment about being high on mushrooms and stuff. It's it's funny, but the the up until this episode, they're kind of stretching Beard into a, a caricature. But what's going on here is Beard is dealing with his own inner shame. This whole episode is his journey of shame. One of the things we discover early in the episode is the impact of secondhand criticism on Beard. The criticism aimed at Ted that still affects him. And uh, those of you particularly who are lead pastors, this is huge if you're married for your spouse, that your spouse is profoundly impacted by the criticism aimed at you. And what I loved about this episode is they actually show one of the ways that it impacts that we don't think about much, which is when uh, you agree with a criticism, if you're the spouse and your loved one is the leader and your loved one's getting criticized for a decision they made, you as the spouse might actually agree with a criticism. Sometimes your wife or your husband, who's the pastor, um, is making decisions that you disagree with. That's what's going on with Beard. Beard loves Ted. Beard is loyal to Ted, but he doesn't agree with Ted's coaching decisions. And now he is trying to grapple with the impact on him. And in the episode, they beautifully show another managing leadership anxiety tool we teach, which is the giants on your shoulders. And so Thierry and Gary, the real-life pundits, the, the football commentators, Thierry and Gary are the giants on Beard's shoulders. He projects them onto the TV screen talking. And it's actually hard in the episode to know what's fantasy and what's real, what's Beard's imagination and what really happened. But these football pundits openly criticizing Beard, giants on his shoulders. Even May, uh, the bartender, in a very rare moment, criticizing Beard while pouring his pint of beer. Very, very unusual. So Beard's journey is this harsh inner critic. And uh, it's, it's so difficult because it, it ends up down in that tunnel where Jamie's dad and his drunk friends start to beat Beard up. It's an awful, awful scene. And th- there are some people whose shame and inner critic is so harsh, they think they deserve punishment. And that's really what happens to Beard as he gets terribly lost in this episode. He keeps losing his keys. I, I think that's a symbol for the fact that he can't get home. You know, it's a house key, but it's really like a key that unlocks where he can feel home and safe. In a lot of ways, that episode is very much like a Greek odyssey. And then finally, when Beard is talking to God uh, in the chapel, it's a breathtaking scene because he can't call God by name. It's like his inner critic is so harsh, he doesn't think he even deserves to talk to God directly. And he says this phrase, are you there, God? It's me, Margaret's little boy. Like he doesn't even say it's Beard, it, Margaret's little boy. Now, obviously the writers are paying tribute here to Judy Bloom. Uh, are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. That, that incredible book. They're playing off that. But that phrase, are you there, God? It's me, Margaret's little boy. Beard doesn't think he's worth loving. And, and, and I, I'm just going to say again, there's, I, I've run into leaders who operate out of this and it's a terrible way to operate. And a lot of the people you lead operate out of this. And this is why I think the journey of health is so powerful is because leaders, first of all, you are worth love. You are worthy of being loved. And the journey of experiencing the love of God is, I believe, the most important journey you face. 
And what I find really difficult is oftentimes leadership, particularly church leadership, can sometimes stunt that journey. So just as we're wrapping up here, I want to challenge you to chase that journey for yourself. And also remember that there are people in your congregation and people on your staff who have such a harsh inner critic that they don't believe they're worthy of being loved. And your journey of health is perhaps one of their better opportunities for them to chase health for themselves. All right. I, I hope you enjoyed that. I have really enjoyed Ted Lasso just for its own pure entertainment, but also looking at it through the lens of systems theory. And uh, you can follow me on Twitter. I'll commit to tweeting the rest of the Ted Lasso episodes now um, because it's fun for me. And also in closing, just a reminder that as of 2022, I'll be doing this work full time, this systems work, this managing leadership anxiety work. I do have a new book in the works that I'll be working on in 2022. I'm looking for work in 2022. So if you'd like to bring me into your organization, just start a conversation. We can, you can email me, steve at stevecusswords.com. If you'd like to explore me coming in and doing a half day for your group or a two-day workshop anywhere in between. Uh, also, my online community, capablelife.me. Capablelife.me. You don't have to bring me in. You can find all of my tools on that community. It's all of these tools I just buzz through here in 10-minute increments. It's an online community, password protected, where you can share what's going on in you. There's a lot of very vulnerable things being shared safely uh, with other leaders there. It's a monthly Zoom with a coach. It's masterclasses. It's all of that. So www.capablelife.me. For those of you who want to do this journey self-paced, we have recently opened up the opportunity for your whole team to do that together. Uh, we do bulk discounts. So if you want to explore that, just email me because I'll send you the link for the group sign up. You can email me at steve at stevecusswords.com. And finally, uh, I, I would greatly appreciate if you haven't done this, even if you're not someone who tends to leave reviews, it would really help me as I get ready for next year. If you would leave a review for my book on Amazon or for my podcast on Apple, I, I'd be really grateful. That's the way you could help me out. All right, we'll see you next week with a guest. Thanks so much. For more resources, visit stevecusswords.com or missyoualliance.org.